We're in Esther chapter 4 today as we continue in our study through the book of Esther. And uh, as you're making your way there, you may recall several weeks ago, I told you a story uh, about a gal named Norma Spence. And I'm going to use Norma as an introduction to Esther chapter 4 today. Um, <clears throat> if you weren't here, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, it was back in, you know, 1999, 2000, somewhere in that region. And, uh, and I was on a plane. I was going to Japan. Uh, we were several hours into the flight, having left LAX. Uh, they make an announcement. There's a gal on board. She's having a heart attack. They need a doctor, and, and nobody's responding. And so I, I finally, <clears throat> I, I, I mean, 747 holds like over 500 people. You know, it's like 524 people or something. I'm thinking, certainly out of LA, they got to have a, you know, a doctor on this plane. Nobody's responding. So I tell the, the stewardess, hey, look, I'm a uh, uh, flight attendant. Hey, listen, I'm a, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm paramedic. I don't know if you need help, but I'm happy to help if I can. And yes, please, we need your help. And so end up going to attend to, to Norma, and she's full-on having full-blown heart attack right there. Pale, cool, diaphoretic, crushing chest pains. I'm like, man, this, this gal's in a world of hurt. And so I go, I talk to the pilot. Hey, listen, she needs to get to a doctor right now. Hey, we're, ten, we're eight hours out of Tokyo. I'm like, she ain't got eight hours. And so we make this decision that we're going we're gonna to divert and we're going to land. Uh, and, uh, and so we do, we divert, we dump a bunch of fuel, we land, they take Norma off the plane. Well, the, the, the great, the greatest part of the story is that, you know, we've got a half an hour where, you know, from the time we decide to divert and dump the fuel to when we land. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, as we do, um, they're landing in Alaska for this gal, uh, you know, as, as we're, you know, on final approach, I'm able to talk to Norma about her, her spiritual condition. And I said, listen, physically, you're in trouble, but we're going to get you some help. But I wonder spiritually, Norma, where are you at? And I was able to share with her the gospel. Listen, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. That's you. That's Mother Teresa. That's Charles Manson. Everybody has sinned. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So for every single one of us, it doesn't matter what kind of a life you've lived, if you, when you go to stand before the Lord, if he says, hey, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, because, you know, I helped a bunch of old ladies across the street, and I, you know, always bought the Girl Scout cookies, and I was basically, you know, nice to my wife. I didn't beat her or anything. And, you know, and, and you get a whole long laundry list of, of good deeds. It doesn't matter how long that list is. It doesn't matter how much your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Man, if you stand before God on your own righteousness, on, the, on your own merit, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And God so loved the world, Norma, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And Norma, here's the truth. You're going to be okay physically. We're getting you the help that you need. But what if you weren't, Norma? What if you died on this plane? Do you know where you would spend eternity? You know, Pastor Ted, that's not fair, man. You're capitalizing on a gal's fears. You know, here she is. She's flying alone, 60-plus-year-old lady. No, man, I'm giving her the gospel, and Norma received Christ as her Lord and Savior. It was awesome. And, and you know, the, the coolest part about that whole experience, it's not just that she got saved. It's the way that she got saved. 
You know, because you think about it, you know, here we're flying out of LAX, there's hundreds of flights coming and going out of LAX all day long, tens of thousands of schedules, individual, you think of all the passengers on all of those planes, and all of the, the crazy schedules, and how our schedules change, and now I'm on a plane, 500 people, and one of those people is having a heart attack, and there ain't no medical people on the plane, except for me. And here we've got a gal who has a profound medical crisis and she has a profound spiritual crisis. And God just providentially, supernaturally, adjusting every schedule and he says, this girl needs a medical professional and she needs a pastor. And there's one guy on the plane that fits that bill and it's just crazy that this providential work of God, how he orchestrates all of these things. We have no idea. We have no clue. And we just sang it before I got up here as we think, as, as we were praising the Lord and we're singing, you work all things together for, for my good. Romans eight twenty eight. in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And it's crazy that this is the God that we love and that we serve and that we know. And he's providentially working in the lives of every person, every one of us here. I think about Norma Spence. Here's a woman who spent 60 plus years of her life running from God, denying God, spiritually speaking, as it were, spitting in God's face, rejecting him. And God loves her so much that he arranged schedules and, and orchestrated things divinely, supernaturally, providentially, and that's our word. Providentially, because he loves her. And I, I wonder this morning as, as we are approaching this text and we're going to look at the providence of God, I wonder what God's doing in your life right now. See, because what happens so often, and we're going to talk about this, but what happens so often is we go through things and we think this isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. This crisis was not on my planner. I, I, it, it can't possibly be right. And what we learn in Esther chapter 4, what we learn in Romans eight twenty eight, is that, you know what? Things happen that are bad, but God's greater than all of those things. And he loves us with an unending love, church. Absolutely loves us. And you know, Satan lies to you and maybe you're here today and you're thinking, just as we're praying, you're like, you know, and Satan whispering in your ear and saying, you know, what, what right do you think that you have to receive the, the love of God? You know who you are. You know what you've been about. You know what your week has been this week. And I would say to you by the authority of God's word, he loves you. And providentially, he's continuing to orchestrate things in your life so that he can care for you. And, and uh, things happen and you think this is a crisis. And God would say, and I'm at work. The apostle Peter said this. He said, God is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this. He says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ. 
the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom, listen, long before the world began and has now revealed him to you in these last days. This is the amazing, providential, self-sacrificing love of a God who loves you so much that from, from the foundations of the world, he planned the brutal execution of his son for the opportunity to redeem your soul individually. God loves us that much. And that's the big idea of Esther chapter four. God loves us and he's providentially working in our life. And we left off last week with the Israelites in serious trouble. They're in a land that they shouldn't be in. They're disobeying God. They're living in compromise and their compromise has cost them. And, and what's happened is we've got this guy named Mordecai and he's raising his, his cousin as his own daughter because her parents have, have died. And so here you have Esther, his cousin, and he's raising her. And because he's living in a land of compromise, Esther is herself compromised. And what happens is this compromise puts them in a precarious place. And now they begin to have the, the sinful world that they're living begin to profoundly encroach on their lifestyle. Esther is taken from Mordecai. She's placed into the king's harem. And she's placed into a lottery to find out, hey, are you going to be the, the king's uh, replacement queen or not? And, and we've well looked at that. And regardless of the outcome, it's a, it's a lousy outcome. Because she either gets a husband who's been sleeping around with women for the past year and a half every single day and who keeps them in an apartment for himself anytime he wants. How's that for a prize husband? Or she's the loser who has to go into the apartment and she, she gets to be his on-call mistress anytime that he wants her. Uh, you know, harem. This is, this is, she's one of the harem girls. This is, this is her lot for living in compromise. Well, God lovingly sovereignly, even though this is the life they've been living, compromise, rebellion, rejecting God, not obeying him, not doing what he tells them to do, no, no longer even identifying with him, completely forgetting God. God hasn't forgotten them. God's providentially working the situation and the circumstances out, and he arranges for Esther to have favor, and Esther is made the queen over this land, the queen to King Ahasuerus. But, and there's some fringe benefits to that, apparently speaking, that, you know, Esther becomes the queen, and now Mordecai gets a promotion, he's working now at the king's gate, but something unexpected happens to Mordecai, he has this guy named Haman, who is promoted to be the prime minister, we looked at him last week, and Haman, the text tells us, is a descendant of King Agag, a horrible enemy of the Jews. And, and all of this transpires now in Mordecai's life. We see last week that it just wakes him up. Mordecai comes face to face with the life of compromise that he's lived. And now, you know, it's, it, you just kind of put yourself in his shoes and you factor everything in and you think somewhere between losing, you know, it's his cousin, but it's his daughter to him in his heart. Somewhere between losing his daughter and now having to bow down to this prime minister who is a sworn enemy of his people, whose, whose, whose grandfather or great-grandfather had mercilessly uh, tortured and killed many 
of his descendants. Somewhere along the line, it woke him up. And he got to the place where, where he realized, man, I am not going to bow. Well, that didn't go over well with, with Haman. As we read last week, Haman reacted. He persuaded the king. He's enraged with, with Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. True to his roots, being a descendant of King Agag, he persuades, Haman does, this King Ahasuerus, hey, let's kill them all. Let's kill all of these Jews. And he, and he couches it in terms that he can manipulate the king. He basically says, we're going to kill them all. We're going to take all their stuff. And all that will go into your treasury. And remember, he just had a, a, a long war with the Greeks and a six-month party that cost tens of millions of dollars in modern-day dollars. The guy needs some money. He needs some cash flow. So he's speaking his language. Sure, kill them all. Let's take their stuff. And this is the lot. This is the place where they're in. And so now, here in chapter 4, as we open on it, like Norma Spence, the Israelites are in crisis. And so too, just like Norma Spence, crisis, listen, this is important, crisis, it's the catalyst that God is going to use to reach these Israelites. And maybe today, as we come to Esther chapter 4 for you, maybe today you're in crisis, Maybe you're going through some sort of a, a, of a struggle, some sort of a, a profound trial. Maybe it's a financial crisis, or maybe it's a relational crisis. Maybe you're in some sort of a medical crisis today. Or maybe, you know what, today, maybe it's going okay for you. But that's today, isn't it? See, because the one thing about crisis is just like the motorcycle rider, you know, there's two types of riders, those that have been down and those that are going down. Crisis, for the, for if you're living, breathing, and you have a pulse, it's only a matter of time before you go down, right? Maybe some of you, you you're coming in here today, you're just off of a crisis. You think, don't remind me, that was horrible. I don't want to go back there. And it doesn't matter where you're at, whether today you're in crisis or whether you're going into crisis. Listen, The crisis is the catalyst that God wants to use in your life to do a work. You see, my hope for you guys today as we come now to Esther chapter 4 is that through the story of Esther that you will be encouraged. That you'll be encouraged that God is faithful even when we are faithless. That he intends to providentially use crisis in your life for his divine purposes. Rahm Emanuel, who was the chief of staff for President Obama for a while, he's now back in, in Chicago, being a great blessing to organizations like Chick-fil-A, etc. But Rahm, I say that facetiously, but Rahm Emanuel, he had a saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. And you know what? That's not his. He stole that because that's God. God never lets a good crisis go to waste. He providentially uses them. And if you're here today and you're going through some sort of a crisis, I want you to to tune in because today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on three opportunities that crisis brings into our life. Just here in Esther chapter 4, three opportunities that crisis brings into our life. You guys ready? First one, if you write it down, crisis provides an opportunity for either confession or cover-up. Crisis provides an opportunity for confession or cover-up. Esther chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, all the things we just talked about, Haman got upset, and he went to the king, and he persuaded the king, and let's kill all the Jews. And so when Mordecai learned all this, 
He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. This is an act of repentance. This is, you know, something that we see throughout the scriptures. We see it in Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in in Daniel, we see it in Jonah. This act of of repentance with repentance mourning and wailing and tearing of the clothes and the sackcloth and all. And, and it's actually uh, prescribed by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, I think it's verse 12, where, where this is to be the response to a sinful state. And so this is how Mordecai responds here. Verse 2, he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You couldn't even go into the king's presence with a sad face. That could get you killed. And so let alone going into his presence with your torn clothes and wearing sackcloth and ashes, uh, you know, that, was, that would be plenty to get you killed. And so he had to stop at the gate, couldn't enter into to the king's uh, courts and into the king's presence. Verse 3, and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, 127 provinces up, uh, across, you know, what is up until that point, the largest kingdom or the largest, the largest realm uh, of, of uh, uh, that the world had ever seen. And in the 127 provinces, this edict goes out. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Many repented. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him but he would not accept them. Listen, throughout the Bible, mourning in sackcloth and ashes, it's a sign of confession and repentance, as we've seen. It's a confession of who God is and who we aren't. It's, it's basically coming to that place where, you know, the, the, the sackcloth, it's like burlap and it's uncomfortable and, it, and it's itchy and it's scratchy and it's basically symbolic of, hey, I'm not gonna get comfortable in this state. This is a bad state for me to be in. The ash, symbolic of, of death and, and just what we are. You know, just our, our life is nothing. It's, it's ash in comparison to a holy and a righteous and a, and a loving God. And so the, the mourning, the weeping, the wailing, the ripping of the, of the clothes and the replacing with the sackcloth and the putting on of ashes, it's, it's all this picture of confession and repentance and we see here in verse 1 and with Mordecai and again in verse 3 with, with many throughout the land that this is their response to their sin. They're confronted with this and they respond appropriately, confession and repentance. But you know where we don't see it? We don't see it with Esther. Esther doesn't respond that way at all. You notice two very different reactions here. Mordecai has his reaction, responding to the crisis again in confession and repentance, but Esther reacts, well, her answer isn't to confess and repent. Her answer is to cover it up, right? She looks, she sees what's going on with Mordecai. She says, you know what? That's, that's nothing that, that a new pair of clothes won't fix, Mordecai. Let me send you a new outfit. Ladies, you can identify with this, right? It's nothing a new pair of shoes can't fix, right? <laughs> going through a difficult time, go shoe shopping, right? 
I don't get that, by the way. I don't understand it. I'm a guy. I'm not supposed to. Listen, we see the same thing today. This is a really important deal. Basically today, where instead of confessing our sin and repenting of it, man, so often what we do is we cover it, right? No different than Adam and Eve in the garden. We just want to, you know, sew together something. We want to cover over it. It's like, hey, this is a problem, man, and I, I just need, I need to, to cover this thing up. I need, to, I need to, to, to do something to fix the outside here. I heard a story recently of a man, 15 years of marriage, and it's going south, and his marriage is circling the drain, man, and it's about to crash hard. And, man, he had an opportunity here for confession. I mean, he's in crisis. And this man, 15 years of, of, of marriage, now is, you know, faced with a, the, the thought of losing everything. And he has a real opportunity to say, you know what, I've blown it. I need to change. You know, I, I, I've made a mess of, of, of my marriage. I've been selfish. I've been self-centered. I, I need to make some changes. No, instead of doing that, instead of confessing that, what did he do? He looked to cover things up. Man, you know what? The problem, I just need some me time. This was his reaction. I just need to focus on me. You know, I just need a new workout. Got himself a new gym. Got himself some new clothes. Got himself a new haircut. Got himself some new friends. And pretty soon before you know it, got himself a new girlfriend. Right? And, and the issue is, is instead of, of dealing with the inside and confessing, Man, he looked for all the stuff that he could have focused on to cover up the pain, the hurt, the, the, the sin, really, in his life. He looked for that exterior cover-up instead of dealing with the things of the interior. And, you know, the Bible says that no temptation has seized you except for that which is common to man. Now, the, the, the implication of, the, of that verse and the focus on that verse is to really talk about, hey, God's faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted, but he's going to give you a way of escape right? The idea is take the way of escape. Don't get caught up in this temptation. But you know what? The first part of that just bears some some thinking through. No temptation to seize you except for that which is common to man. And the issue is, is that when we have these issues of wanting to cover things up, that's common. That's common. People struggle with that all the time. And, And you know, it's what am I, I'm hurting, what am I going to, what am I going to cover up? What am I going to, to, to make over? What, what is it that I can do in this situation? Not confess, cover. Food, I can cover it with food. Man, I can cover it with relationships. I can cover it with recreation. I can cover it with television. I can cover it with alcohol. I can cover it with drugs. I can cover it with shopping. In the year, early years of my marriage, I was in a situation where man, I, I'd mismanaged my money. I wasn't a good steward of money. And, you know, my whole life growing up, my whole adult life was, was built around an industry where, man, you know, if you, you can have as much overtime as you want. And, and so it was like, you know, there was no restraint in my purchasing. It was sort of like, well, yeah, you want that? I'll just work an overtime shift. You know, and, and, and so, you know, there's bad joke. A couple of guys walking down the street, a guy and his, his girlfriend walking down the street and they're window shopping and she sees this necklace and she says, oh, I, he said, you like that necklace? Oh, I love that necklace. 
He picks up a rock, he throws it through the window, he grabs her the necklace. They get a little further down, she sees, you know, these awesome shoes. Oh, I love those shoes. You "You want those shoes? Yeah, okay. Picks up a rock, throws it through the window, gives her some shoes. They get a little further down the street, she sees this gorgeous television. She says, you want that television? Oh, please, I want that television. He's like, what do you think, I'm made of rocks? I'm sorry. (laughs) Don't tell that 11 o'clock service. All right. Um, In my situation, man, it was always, you know, the rock was, there's always another overtime shift. I didn't run out overtime shifts. I ran out of days of the week that I could work. I was gone all the time. And so I'm in a position where, like, for me, my cover-up, because I, my, what was my sin? I was a horrible steward of money. And my cover-up for that, I'll just work another overtime shift. Meanwhile, my wife, she's home alone with the kids. My kids calling me crying at night. Daddy, when are you coming home? Some of those years that I would give my liver for to have back, because I was a horrible steward, and I'm covering up. Overtime, man. That'll cover it. But, you know, I wonder for you guys. Are you in a crisis situation right now? And I wonder, are you looking to cover up that situation with something? You're looking to deal with the exterior of things? I wonder if you're willing and ready, like Mordecai, sackcloth, ashes, repentance. Man, are you willing to confess? Man, I'm, I, I, this crisis is revealing a sinful pattern in my life. And God's faithful and he's allowed this. Well, not only does crisis provide an opportunity for confession in our lives, Secondly, crisis provides an opportunity to live by faith or to live by fear. Say that again. Crisis provides an opportunity to live by faith or to live by fear. Verse 5. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Why are you ripping your clothes, wearing sackcloth, wearing ashes? Why are you mourning? What is going on? And so Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. And he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and to plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. 
that he might live. Listen, if I go before the king and he hasn't called for me, you know, basically the, the, the edict, I'll, I'll, I'll be dead. That's the, that's the law. If you go before uninvited king, this is the king's way of keeping everything. You know, I don't, don't you hate it when people show up unannounced, they knock on your door and the king's like, I'm the king. I'll just kill him. So that's the edict. You show up without being invited, <laughs> you're dead. Now, if I open the door and, you know, and then I decide, you know, in that moment, yeah, that's cool. You can come in. Well, then I'll extend the scepter and then you won't die. And so this is what Esther is saying. She's like, if I show up and, and show up to the king in presence, He's going to kill me unless he extends the golden scepter. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. By the way, just, just underlines, underscores why this was such a bad deal for Esther. Living in compromise. Hey, she became the queen. Yeah, look at her husband. 30 days he hasn't called for her. It's already demonstrated he likes to sleep with a lot of women. So you can imagine what he's been doing for 30 days. It hasn't been with Esther She's got a horrible life as a result of her compromise. Whole nother message, throwing that out there for you. So, verse 12, they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Hey, you're no different. You might be the queen, but you're still a Jew. And don't think that you're going to escape. Because this is not just going to kill all your brothers, not, all, not just going to kill all your sisters, not just going to kill all the generation. You're part of us, Esther. You're a Jew as well. And you won't escape. Verse 14, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now listen, We've got two very different reactions to this situation. You've got a reaction of faith and you have a reaction of fear. Every crisis is going to provoke within you a reaction. You will either react by faith or you will react in fear. And Mordecai, for his part, we see him exercising faith. He's, he's done exactly what God has commanded him to do uh, in Joel 2.12 in that he has fasted, he's weeping, he has rent his clothing, he has, he has you know, put on sackcloth and ashes. And so here he is, he's doing exactly what God has called him to do in this situation. He's repenting and he's taking steps that are consistent with repentance and he's calling Esther to take steps as well. And so for the most part, we see Mordecai's reactions, actions of faith. Now, those were actions that put him at risk. We've already covered, you know, if you go into the king's presence with even a sad face, it could get you killed. Here he is. He's in sackcloth ashes. I mean, the, the, the minor end of the spectrum is he's going to be ridiculed, right? And it's funny. I'll talk to people and they'll finally surrender their life to Christ. I remember in particular one guy I used to work with for years would not surrender his life to Christ. And come to find out, he was worried what all his buddies were going to think. I'm like, you almost spent eternity in hell because you were worried about what those losers at the, at the station thought of you? Are you kidding me? And it's crazy. People will do anything to kind of save face. And so Mordecai, he takes these actions. He's like, by faith, I don't care. I don't care if I look like a fool. Man, I, I, I need to repent. I don't care if it could cost me my life. I need to repent. But notice Esther doesn't do that. 
See, she is a girl who's responding by fear. And this is really important. I want you to get this. Notice what her fear almost costs. Historians estimate at this time that there were between 10 and 12 million Jews in in this land at this time. 10 and 12 million. The edict was kill them all. And Mordecai tells Esther, you need to go talk to the king. You need to do something to get this law changed. And he's going to say at the end of verse 14, you know, what do you know that you haven't been put here in this place for such a time as this, Esther? You don't know. You need to do something. Esther writes back to him and says, it could get me killed. I ain't doing it. That's her answer. Her answer is no. And fear caused her to say no to Mordecai. And had her no stood there, 12 million people would have been killed because she was afraid. And and here's the point of application for us, and it's super important that we get this. Listen, fear is destructive. And what happens is, well, Proverbs 29, 25 says this. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now, that word snare there in Proverbs 29, 25, it's it's an interesting Hebrew word. It it basically refers to an animal trap. And and the way a snare trap works, if you've watched any Discovery Channel, watch the, you know, Explorer Man or Survivor Man, whatever it is, and, and, uh, you know, he sets up a trap with a snare in it, what they do is they basically erect in a small area where animals are going to go through, they erect barriers, and they basically have only one place where they, can, where they can go through, and that's where they stick this snare. And the snare will capture the prey and will kill the prey. And, and really, what, what happens here is that Satan does the same thing to us. See, listen, Satan can't touch you. The enemy cannot lay a hand on you. But what can the enemy do? The enemy can cause you to fear. And what he wants to do in causing you to fear, like this wild animal, he wants to have you of your own free will, because you're afraid, he wants you to take a course that's going to ensnare you and that's going to bring death. This is exactly what he's doing to Esther. And so here she's focused in a place where she's fearful of men. And she has completely allowed her fear to cause her to, to move in a direction that's opposite of God's will, that's going to bring about the death of an entire nation, an entire race of people. Listen, I have this in my notes. It's actually my current Facebook status, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I'd encourage you to write it down. Every crisis we face is a crossroads where we must choose one of two paths. One is a path of fear, and the other is a path of faith. Let me say that again. Every crisis that we face is a crossroads. And at that crossroads, you have a choice. You must choose one of two paths. One path will be the path of fear. The other path will be the path of faith. We'll leave that up there for a couple of seconds, but as you're contemplating that, let me just say this. Some of you are at that crossroads right now. Today, right now. Some of you are at a crossroads in your life right this moment. You're in a place where, man, 
Am I going to operate and respond in faith or am I going to operate and respond in fear? Now, with that in mind, I want you to remember that crisis is the catalyst that God uses to reach us. And so you're having a crisis and God's allowed it. And so as you wrestle between fear and faith, keep in your mind, hey, God's allowed this. God wants me to take the direction of faith. And God is for me. He's not against me. God does not want to see me destroyed. God promises that the work that he will do in us will be a good work. Now, we might not always understand it, and he may prescribe a a season of pain, but we need to trust in him in that season. And so the the path that you're on right now, or the, the, the crisis perhaps that you're in right now, it's a catalyst that God wants to use to reach you. And you have a path, a way you could go. This was true for Joshua. In Joshua chapter one, his crisis was Moses died. And guess what, Joshua? You're next in line. You get to lead the nation of Israel. He's like, I saw what that did to Moses. Man, I don't want to do it. His crisis is, man, I've got to lead this nation. Now, his temptation is to fear. And we know that because you read Joshua chapter one, and within the first you know, eight or nine verses, God's already told him four times, don't fear, don't be afraid. Why does he tell him that? Because he's fearful and afraid. And God's like, don't do it. Don't be afraid. And so, you know, Joshua, he speaks to the people. He tells them everything that God has told them to, told him to say to them. And what do they say at the very end when they speak back to him? They tell him, yeah, we're going to follow you. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, support you just as we did Moses. What's the last thing they say? Man, by the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, by the, by the power of God, they all recognize the same thing, and I believe they speak by the prompting of God in their hearts. They tell Joshua the same thing. Don't be afraid. We're going to follow you, Joshua, only don't be afraid. This is true for Israel, 1 Samuel 17. Their crisis is Goliath, and they're immobile. They're, they're, they're in fear. They're afraid. It takes David showing up who says, God's been with me in the past. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. This guy's going to be just like them. He's the one guy who moves forward in faith. And the giant falls. Up until that point, man, immobilized in fear. It's true for Gideon's in Judges 6 and 7. You guys hiding in a wine press, you know, trying to, to shake out the grain, separate the chaff from the wheat. You know, you need the wind to do that. You don't hide in a hole to do that, but he's afraid of the Midianites. That's his crisis. And he has to decide in this point, what am I going to do? Listen, the question in every crisis is always the same. The question is always the same. Here it is. Will you trust in God or not? Are you going to trust in God or not? Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, everything in my life, everything that I go through, I'm a physical being. I live in a physical world. I face physical crises. And what do I do when I face them? Well, in my gut, I want to engineer it. I want to do what I can see, what I can touch, what I can handle. I want to be able to engineer my way out of this. And Hebrews chapter uh, 11, verse 6 says, no, no, no. Without faith, you can't please God. 
So everything in me wants to walk by sight. And God says, no, I want you to walk by faith. And we get a vivid picture of this here with Esther and Mordecai. That they, we see this, these two outlooks reflected in the way that they respond. Mordecai, basically his attitude, well, if you'll, if you'll look at verse 14, here's Mordecai's attitude. Hey, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jew from some other place, but you and your family are going to perish. Hey, that is the words of faith. Listen, Esther, I know that God's going to take care of us. And listen, you don't even know. He goes on to say, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Key verse in the entire book of Esther. Providential hand of God. Who knows, Esther? But I'll tell you what, I'm gonna trust God by faith. And if you don't, you won't live to talk about it. So we see Mordecai, he just, it's, it, his very demeanor is reflected. But notice also Esther's outlook, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, uh, neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, and he did according to all that Esther commanded him. Listen, we still see it reflected. Esther's doing the right thing, and that's important. I'll come right back to that. But what do her words illustrate? Her words illustrate she's fearful, man. She's still got a lot of fear cooking in there, right? And, and, and you right now, in, in your crisis, I know it. I've been there, and I get it. And fear is right there. And, and I think about, you know... Jesus has this conversation with Peter in Luke chapter 5, and they're there at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret, and, and you know, Jesus already used his boat to preach out of, and now he says to Peter, hey, hey, launch out into the deep, and let's go fishing. And, you know, the backstory basically is you catch fish in the shallow waters at night. Now it's midday, and they've fished all night. They've caught nothing. He cleaned his boats. He's cleaned his nets, and now Jesus has just made a wreck of all of that. He's back in his boat, Last place you want to be having worked all night, I'd be selling my nets, not cleaning them. And you're out there, and Jesus says, hey, now, now launch out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter's response is kind of similar to what I see Esther's response here to Mordecai. He says, Master, we've fished all night, and we've caught nothing. In other words, I'm a fisherman. I do this for a living. I'm a professional. Last I checked, you're a carpenter, okay? And, and so I, <laughs> I know that we've fished all night, we caught nothing. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll launch, I'll, I'll launch out and I'll let my, down my nets for a catch. And so what we see there, and this is the point I want you to take home, is that if you're at that crossroads and you've got a decision, faith, fear, and I'm fearful, and I'm fearful, I would say, take the step of faith. And you say, okay, I can take the step of faith, but I'm still afraid. And I say, perfect, because that's what Esther did. She says, if I die, I die. And I believe in her heart and in her mind. She thought at that moment, I'm going to die. This is bad. Hey, listen, she still took the step of faith. 
And that's what, that's what we need to do when you're at that crossroads, when you're at that place. Listen, crisis provides that opportunity either for a confession or cover-up. Crisis provides that opportunity either for faith or for fear. And thirdly, in our last point, and I'll just finish real quickly with this, crisis provides opportunity to trust in God's providence. Crisis provides the opportunity to trust in God's providence. And I'm gonna make this point short and sweet as we draw to a close. God loves you. He died for you. He wants the best for you. And I don't care what your crisis is today. I don't care what you're going through. God loves you. He cares very much for you. And he will providentially work through that. And that crisis is going to be the vehicle through which you are going to see God's providence working in ways you can't imagine. And like David, you will face your next crisis and you will look back and you will say, you know what? When I was a boy and I was tending my father's sheep and that crisis happened and that bear came and I was so terrified, you know what? God helped me to overcome him. He was with me then and he's gonna be with me now.